Hey, are you looking for new and innovative ways to connect with your children? Do you want to learn how to connect with them through hip-hop, social media, and popular culture? Then look no further than my company, The Glad Dad. I'm Dion, a keynote speaker, professional development trainer, and workshop presenter. And I'm also an expert in family engagement. And I want to show you and everyone around you how to use the latest trends to connect with young people on a much deeper level. A level that will truly break down barriers and create change. By working with The Glad Dad, you'll learn how to break through the noise and meet young people where they are to connect with them on their level. You'll discover new ways to communicate, engage, and create meaningful connections that'll last a lifetime. Whether you're a parent, teacher, or youth leader, I want to teach you the strategies that'll help you connect with your kids like never before. From keynote speeches to professional development training, I got you covered. So don't wait any longer. Visit my website, DionChavis.com today to learn more about how I can help you connect with your children through hip-hop, social media, and popular culture. Your kids will thank you for it. That's right, The Glad Dad, helping adults establish positive relationships with young people. Reach out to me today and let's discuss how I can serve you and your staff. Now let's get back to the podcast. Hey y'all, what's up? Welcome to the latest and greatest edition of the Dads in the Dads in the Class podcast. That's a tongue twister sometimes. Uh, it's me, Dion, your host, and glad to be here. Of course, this is the podcast that we talk about uh, education. We talk about the importance of family and fatherhood engagement in their kids' education. And got a real special guest on the episode today. Uh, this young gentleman is somebody who is doing a lot of great work from. Uh, he's from the state of North Carolina, but he is now in law school down in ATL and uh, really thought that he would be someone that was good to have on the podcast just to talk about his experiences and uh, some of the things that he has been involved in and a lot of the work that he's been doing in terms of social justice and in terms of education and just just a good brother, man. So I just wanted to bring Mr. Greer Webb onto the show. Thank you for joining us, sir. Thank you for being here. Thanks for having me. Thanks for having me. I'm looking forward to our conversation. Absolutely, man. So let's dive right in. Of course, like I said, you're from uh, you're from Raleigh. What part of Raleigh are you from? I'm from North Raleigh. You know, it's growing and changing and expanding. And now Midtown is one section. And I've heard there's, yeah, yeah, yeah. Even, you know, like an uptown now somewhere off Capitol Boulevard. <laughs> but anyway, I'm from the North Hills area. Grew up uh, going to Douglas Elementary School, went to Carroll Middle School right off Six Forks, which is where my dad went, actually. Um, and then Sanderson mm -hmm. High School, which is also where my dad went. So I'm definitely a product of uh, Raleigh Wood, as some call it, and definitely enjoyed my upbringing there. That's dope, man. So now you're down in Atlanta at Emory University School of Law, which I think is remarkable. Can you kind of pinpoint a moment in your early life uh, that sent you down this path of uh, justice and advocacy that you've been on for a while now? You know, I don't know if I can pinpoint one exact moment. I've always been an arguer, I'm always a resistor. Uh, hopefully people see me as a change maker now, but I grew up in the family of educators, really. Of course, I have a Black father. Um, I also have a Black grandfather. I have family that is diverse, but also that has always poured into me, and I think that's a blessing. And so I was always encouraged to raise my voice, to use it for positive change. So 
from the elementary school playground to the middle school basketball court. I mean, I've always been somebody to push back and use my voice uh, to help others, to defend others, and, and hopefully to uplift those around me. That's always my goal. And so I think from a young age, just growing up loving people, um, it's kind of always propelled me down this path toward law school. And so it's been six weeks now at Emory Law School here in mm. the ATL, um, and I'm so blessed and thankful to be there. Yeah. Now, as a, a budding legal mind at Emory, how do you feel that the legal system can kind of better address the racial divide, especially here in North Carolina? Yeah, so I think North Carolina is, is a very diverse place. Um, as many people from North Carolina know, we have the mountains, we have the coast, we have the Piedmont, we've got tech cities, we've got rural North Carolina, we have young, we have old, we have, I still, I, th I think we still have the largest Native American population east of the Mississippi River. So we've got it all. Mm. Um, and the law is in everything. And so that's one of the reasons I wanted to become a lawyer or an attorney, because the law dictates so much of what we do from the education space to the technology space um, to sports. So much of, of what we do and, and what we do uh, for one another is dictated by the law. And so I think mm -hmm. that written change is so important. I mean, I have some of my law books right here that I'm looking at when I think about some of these issues, specifically when it comes to education in North Carolina. Um, I think I've, I've grown up frustrated, I would say, because I see the ways in which the law is not currently working to support everyone, especially people of color or those marginalized like young people or those in the LGBTQ plus community um, are, are women. It, it, there are so many ways in which we need to change the laws um, or at least enforce the laws that are already on the books. What I mean by that, when you talk about enforcement, that can be sometimes a loaded term. We look at the Leandro plan in North Carolina that guides public education. I'm not only a product of North Carolina and its education systems, but public education education in particular, all the way through undergrad at UNC Chapel Hill, the nation's first public university. I've been a product of public education and I loved my experience. And so when I think of the Leandro plan um, and that 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 wording that we hear a lot in the education or political space in North Carolina, sound basic education, I see the ways that our funds are not really being utilized um, to, to the max. And so when I think about education or politics or the law, it all goes back to people for me, Dion, and it goes back to are we supporting one another the best way we can? Are we defending one another the best way we can? Um, yes, are we having fun, but also are we having those tough conversations that come along with life? Um, are we thinking in ways that propel people toward their highest and fullest potential? So when I think, think back to my home state, North Carolina, I see a lot of divisiveness right now when it comes to politics and when it comes to that legal space. And so I hope that uh, we all continue to, to fight for peace and love um, and making sure that everyone has a right to that sound basic education that our constitution, right, our, our guiding legal document in the state promises. Mm -hmm. So now as, as a young man, you've done a lot of work. Um, you know, you've, you've, you've definitely had your nose to the ground and you've definitely been on the forefront uh, of a lot of the, the changes that folks have been talking about and wanting to see here in North Carolina. One of the things that you uh, did was kind of co-found uh, the Young Americans protest organization, right? Uh, and I think yeah. you did that at what, 17? Yes, uh, 17, I believe, in 2018, after the Parkland mm -hmm. school shooting down in Florida. Hmm. What, what drove you to create um, that organization? And how do you think it's going to impact um, 
the perspective of social justice and social issues uh, for our youth? I love that question because it throws me back. I can't believe it's been five years since I worked with some of my peers to co-found that. I mean, high school and college at this point seemed like a blur. So much happened, right? So much was packed into that time. When you think about education, when you think about politics, when you think about our world, what I mean by that is recently we have this affirmative action decision that came down from the Supreme Court. I was in college during the COVID-19 pandemic, also during George Floyd's murder. And so all of the the lessons that I learned in high school, the lessons that I learned from my family, the people I mentioned earlier, the lessons I learned from my parents in particular, they all came to a head for me, most clearly my junior year of high school. So we're talking 2018, uh, February 14th, I believe it was Valentine's Day actually, that a gunman went into the school, a high school down in Parkland, Florida, and um, tragically killed many, many young people. And I just felt what my pastor sometimes calls righteous anger or holy discontent. I knew something was wrong and I had to use my voice and my agency to do something to help the Raleigh community and the North Carolina community at large. And so I worked with some of my friends and put on the North Carolina Town Hall. We had people come out to Sanderson High School in Raleigh and we talked about what young people could do to drive the conversation to reduce gun violence. And from there, that led to Young Americans Protest or YAP. For short, I had two fellow co-founders, Zainab Baloch and Woody Wise. Woody's now um, up in school or finished up school at Fordham University in New York. And Zainab Baloch is still in the Raleigh area doing great work. And I think Young Americans Protest, to your question directly, the impetus for that is my vision that I call the big three. And I think it's so great that we're having this conversation at this time and specifically talking so much about education because education is the first pillar when I think about my big three. So the big three is like an equation. I call it the equation for true change. The first mm -hmm. pillar, as I mentioned, is education. The second is protesting or resisting injustice. And the third is policy change, changing the law. I think when you really pair those three things together, those three elements together, that's where you get true and lasting change. And so Young Americans Protest was the vessel for that change. And so our goal remains to plug young people across the state of North Carolina into their political environments and atmospheres, whether they live in a city or in rural North Carolina. If they have questions about their representatives, if they want to learn how to organize a protest, they can reach out to us via social media. They can reach out to me and we can give them some of the tools that we've learned from our mentors and from studying movements in this country, like the civil rights movement, the gay rights movement, the anti-war movement, these movements for peace, these movements that all started and launched off that pillar of education. So that's kind of the driving force behind Young Americans Protest is education, but more broadly, the big three. Education, protesting when it's when it's time to do so, and then working not only to get the government to change laws, but also to get um, you know our companies to change their policies. If you can get written down change, there is so much potential for you to seek justice. And so um, I think it's, it's very important when you look at not only the education space, right, but just quickly neighborhoods and neighborhood covenants and the way that racism is baked into many of our systems and structures. Mm. Of course, in school, you think about dress codes, you think about suspensions. What can we do to make sure that equity is written into our laws and our policies and our covenants? And so that's what I'm focused on now is really, um, you know, gleaning all that I can at law school to, to really take the vision and goal of Young Americans Protest global. Hmm. 
And it's, you know, it's funny that you said that because I was just reading an article, I believe yesterday about a young man and I can't remember the state that he's in. A part of me wants to say Florida because it's always Florida, but Texas, it could be somewhere. Is it Texas where he had locks and they are, they suspended him for having locks. Um, and they said that when he returns, they're going to suspend him again if he hasn't yes. cut his hair. Um, and, you know, just as a, you know, nothing surprises me anymore about the country that we live in. I'm not surprised. Um, but I want to know from, from your perspective, how do you talk to parents, right? Who, because you are probably out of all of the guests that we've had on the show so far, you of course are not just the youngest, but you are the, 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 you were more recently involved in the public school system. Um, so you have hands-on experience from a student standpoint. What words would you have for a parent who is um, having, who has a child in public education, right? Uh, but they're not sure that that child is being treated fairly. Mm. I mean, I think first of all, to, to the first point there, I was kind of reading your mind. I think it's so interesting that we have that shared history, right? And unfortunately, that shared trauma oftentimes in the Black community across the United States. I think it was Texas, the story you're talking about where someone's hair, right? Their natural hair has now caused them to experience a trauma to possibly... This, this is the same day, not to cut you off, this is the same day that the Crown Act took effect. Right. And in that state, like the exact same day. Okay, go ahead. Exactly. Well, that's actually where I was going next. One of my mentors in the okay. political space, uh, one of my mentors in the political space, Ajwa Asamoah, has been very instrumental in the Crown Act in its passage. And she was there in Texas, actually, when the governor signed it into law. And so to see this now um, take take effect, right, this suspension of this young man, and I know they're fighting it there on the ground, but still, um, it is not only traumatic, I feel like that's a word we toss around often, but it's very hurtful. Right. Let's make sure that, that we're discussing this on, on the humanity level, on the, on the person level. I mean, he's having this national attention for, uh, you know, you can argue, OK, yes, you, you knew what the dress code was. You didn't know what it was. You know what America is like. But it shouldn't be this way. Um, that's why we're having to pass acts like the Crown Act so people can display their natural hair and be valued more for the work that they do and how they care for others than how they look. I mean, it's really ridiculous. And it is it is upsetting. And so now in my work as senior advisor to Sidekicks Academy in Durham, North Carolina, this is a group that was formed two, three years ago to empower black and brown elementary schoolers in Durham's public school system to really take pride in themselves and in their heritage. We teach self-defense and Taekwondo. So my goal is to continue to provide strategy for this organization. And in these strategy discussions, we, of course, include parents. I mean, we're talking about third, fourth, fifth graders their families are so important to how they behave in school, how they uh, produce in school, how they care for others that they encounter at school. And so I think it's very important. My, my main message for those parents is just encourage your children, right? Of course, there are times when discipline is necessary, but how are you doing that in a way that teaches and doesn't just punish? How do you really engage with the school environment and community? You know, how do you show up and support the best you can? Um, and many of our families, right, both parents work. And so it's tough sometimes to, to make everything. But does your child know that you're doing your best, right? Are you talking to them and sharing 
with them about your family history and about your goals and visions and dreams for them. And so when you do all of that, right, those are positive things. And then you see such a system like racism in America come and just slam the door shut, as it has in this case with the young brother with locks. It, what do you do? It, it's 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 frustrating. And so I think mental health is a big part of this. It's a big part um, of everyone's life. But I think now that we're talking more about it, it has a specific specifically powerful effect in the lives of of our black families. So I think mental health support and resources in times like this, right? If I was speaking to the parents of that young man down in Texas, I would say, make sure that your emotions um, are being supported in this moment. Sit with your emotions. I uh, don't try and, and go over, jump over this moment, but go through it um, and understand that it is frustrating and upsetting and wrong. Um, what can we do to take this experience as we often do in the black community in this country and make sure that others don't have to go through this? How can we how can we educate? How can we protest this incident? And then how can we also go and change written policy? Um, how can we strengthen the Crown Act, as you mentioned earlier? So those are just some of my thoughts and, and what I would say. Um, it's tough. It's difficult. I don't have all the answers, but just understanding the lessons that my parents and even grandparents taught me about what it means to be different in America and the different pressures that are placed upon us because of that. All we can do is, is do our best to support each other um, and continue to, to pour out love to those around us. Now, I will also say, too, that love often looks like accountability. And so I'm not saying to just turn the other cheek every time, but I'm saying that sometimes uh, when you swivel your head back, you should be armed with resources. Um, you should have your emotions and, and mental health uh, protected, and you should be ready to hit the ground running to make sure that you are uplifting um, and bettering the experiences of those around you. Hmm. Now, you mentioned your work with uh, sidekicks, and I was going to get to that a little bit later, and I, I, I still will. But um, one of the things that you made me think of is that on last week's episode, we had Dr. Will Jackson from Village of Wisdom on the show. Um, and it dawned on me when you spoke about sidekicks that there is a lot of work being done in the city of Durham, North Carolina, to change uh, the trajectory of the educational uh system and the lived experiences that our young uh, Black babies are going through. What do you think it is about Durham that um, is, is, is putting them at the forefront and putting them on the front lines? And the folks in Durham, I love Durham, North Carolina, man. Me too. Me too. Uh, but what do you think it is about the city of Durham that really uh, causes that change to, to take place? Man, I was just having this conversation with somebody the other day because I have spent a lot of time these past two, three years in Durham because I think there is so much potential. Not only potential, though, let's talk about the present. There's so much present power in Durham. I think mm -hmm. a lot of that, Dion, goes back, especially in the black and brown communities of Durham, to the civil rights movement times and even before when Durham had a black Wall Street that was systematically torn down when Durham had just strong black leadership. And I think they still have strong black leadership. I think right now there, Durham is a focal point. Um, and I think Durham is also at a breaking point um, at the risk of putting too much pressure on one city. I think Durham has a great, great, great opportunity right now to invest in education, to invest in people of color. I think the Durham community is very supportive, black, brown, white, and otherwise. I think the people there love one another and they love that city. 
And so it does pain me to see so many of the negative news stories that come out of Durham. And yes, violence and community violence is a reality, and it's something I think we should address. But I think we address that through tough love, um, through love that, again, uplifts people and protects their mental and emotional health, but also challenges them to be better, and through education, specifically public education. We're seeing in North Carolina a disinvestment in public education. Uh, if you just look at the way that our teachers have been paid historically, at the way we talk about public education, at the way we demonize some of our political leaders' public education, it pains me as a product of public education who was able to see that diversity as a people, diversity in North Carolina, in Raleigh, in Durham, you know, across the state in Wilmington and Boone is our strength, these different experiences that we have um, in allowing our students to realize and understand that diversity is so often a strength. To see that being stripped away right now is, is frustrating. And so I think Durham has a real chance, a real opportunity to get tough. And when I, when I say get tough, I mean get tough about investing in public education, get tough about making sure the stories coming out of there are accurate, but also positive. And there are so many, not only Sidekicks Academy and the work of Village of Wisdom and others, the YMCA there in Durham, there are so many people and organizations doing great work in Durham that I think need to continue to be uplifted. Um, and I think that one of the reasons too, and this is a whole nother conversation, but I think one of the reasons that Durham is continuing to see such high rates of, of crime is because not only the, the, the inflation that we see in the current state of the economy, but the fact that so many of the young people in Durham are not engaged in their education anymore. And so I would say to continue, and Freddie McNeil, our, our founder at Sidekicks Academy, does a great job of of bringing in parents, bringing in families, and specifically Black fathers in Durham to make sure that um, they are doing the best that they can, given their circumstances and realities, to support their students and make sure they stay in school as long as they can. It really makes a difference. Um, you know, we can have conversations about not only community violence, but about the way we educate our young people. I think we're missing an opportunity across the state and really across the country to allow students at a certain age, of course, to guide their education. When I study the, the educational systems in other nations, including going and visiting the continent of Africa last year, I see the way um, that education is so valued and that students are able to hone in on their passions from an earlier age. And that really brings them more joy and gives them more energy when they are learning. So I think there's a whole conversation here that starts with education that's going to take some um, you know, tough introspection. And I think Durham is just such the heart of that for, for our state. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I agree. Now, moving down the road a little bit, just a few minutes from Durham, of course, is Chapel Hill. And you are a uh, graduate of UNC Chapel Hill. Uh, how did <laughs> your experience... <laughs> and, 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 you know, congratulations, because I know that wasn't an easy feat. Uh, but how did your experiences at UNC Chapel Hill kind of shape your views on uh, the importance of education in, in bridging certain racial divides? I think my education at Chapel Hill um, played a huge role in who I am today. Uh, I played a huge role in the friends that I have today. I thought I wanted a smaller to medium sized college or university, maybe even a private university. But um, I was... I was really blessed to be able to attend the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. As I mentioned, there's so much history 
packed in to UNC. And now that I'm here in Georgia, I'm hearing that folks down here think University of Georgia was the first public university. It goes back to charters and a bunch of, I think UNC takes the cake, takes the title. But I think what, what really uh, inspired me about being a student at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill was the ability to form my own community, to form a diverse community, to participate in different aspects of college life. And I do just want to mention, you know, before going forward, that there's been a lot of violence, right, that has taken place on the grounds and a lot of trauma that has has been initiated on the grounds of my university. I mean, it's just so unfortunate when you think about gun violence and you think about violent threats and the way that that impacts young people who are still forming physically, right? Our brains are still developing at that time. We're trying to figure out what we want to do with our lives to have those lockdowns um, and, and just those fears of, I don't even know if this is going to be my last day, if, if I'm going to, you know, be hurt on this place that's supposed to be a safe haven, uh, on the grounds of a safe haven. But I think that that even more so to your point, what I learned at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, I majored in political science and also what they call AAAD, African, African-American, and Diaspora Studies, I was able to engage with people, right? People who had um, just such diverse and, and strong history. Uh, I met people who had been in Chapel Hill their whole lives. I remember, um, uh, I believe she's about 80 years old now, but I had a conversation with um, she still calls herself an activist. She marched with Jesse Jackson when he was the student body president at North Carolina A&T. And she really mm -hmm. um, gave of herself as she was a college student to the cause of racial justice. That's something I tried to do. Um, so just going and soaking up and, and gleaning that education from such a flagship university, I think, um, was very instrumental in, in my higher educational journey. I think it propelled me here to Emory. Uh, Emory is similar to UNC in many ways in that they are one of the flagship institutions for their state, that a lot of research comes out of both of those places. A lot of um, you know forward thinking comes out of both of those places, but they're also plagued by the history that impacts us all as Americans, uh, by racism, mm -hmm. by what the cities and towns around them are doing, what is their role as we propel and, and move forward through this 21st century. And so I think UNC Chapel Hill um, was, was, as I said, a great blessing for me. Um, and being able to, to get there, meet people from around North Carolina, but also from around the country and the world who were all there to learn. I um, mean, everyone that I was, uh, that I stuck around anyway, they cared about those around them and they cared about what was going on outside of the university. And I think that is super powerful. I got started with Sidekicks Academy while I was a student at University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, I wanted to to do more and pour into our rising leaders in North Carolina. And so I, I think that UNC is a great place. Um, all institutions have work to do to uh, repeal some of the, the harmful history that comes with them. But I think to be able to contribute to some positive change while a college student was certainly, certainly a poignant part of my life. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And you spoke about some of the, the recent incidents uh, that have occurred at UNC and the, the student body has been at the, the forefront of the news over the last couple of weeks. I heard something this morning that said, I believe, um, I'm not sure if it was a student body president or someone from the uh, student body went to visit the White House um, recently. It might have been yesterday or a couple of days before. 
Um, and, you know, all of, of course, all of that has to do with the incidents that have, like you said, involved the campus lockdowns, the threats. And of course, that was that tragic shooting of a professor of a professor a couple of weeks ago. Um, if you were there, what strategies would you suggest be put in place for them to actually see uh, tangible change? Mm, that's a great question. And I'll try to keep this brief. This is something that I not only studied and researched and talked to my friends about while I was there, but actually advocated for. Let me take it from a more broad perspective first. Yes, I do have to shout out the current student body president, Chris Everett. Um, he is a black man, the child of a black father, right, in a black family. And so to, to see his leadership has been great. One of my friends, former student body president, Lamar Richards, was the first black and openly gay student body president at UNC Chapel Hill in the 21st century, right? To see their leadership, um, Talaja Van, a black woman, don't want to leave her out by any means. To see black people leading at this university that was not built for us, but rather built by us, is so powerful and needs to be acknowledged. And so, again, when you look at some of these numbers, numbers tell the story a lot of times, not all the time, but North Carolina is at least 20% Black these days. The student body at UNC, North Carolina's flagship university, is only 10% Black. And so uh, we were there, 20,000 students on campus, right? Only 10% were Black, 2,000. So when you think about that and think about the community that is necessitated from those small numbers, that's why you have such power. That's why you have such closeness among these communities of color on college campuses. I do think that when it comes to gun violence and school shootings, I mean, it, it is a tough subject. Um, I guess trigger warning for anyone listening, but it's something that is a reality that parents, black, white, or otherwise have to worry with and think about when they're sending their their children to school at, at every level. I mean, preschool to, to college and beyond. I, it, you can be anywhere these days and not know if somebody is going to have an episode and also have a gun. I mean, it's scary. That's just what it is. And so on such a public and open campus like UNC Chapel Hill, to your specific question about maybe what policies or ideas would I propose if I were back there, one would be that that students are better trained for these lockdown situations. I went to Wake County Public Schools and K-12, uh, we were put into a corner at least once or twice a year and told to be quiet and told that that was what we were to do uh, if there was a code red lockdown drill. At North Carolina, we never practiced that. Um, professors might receive some type of training, some type of verbal or written training. Uh, but what you see, even here at Emory, uh, because I think like this, I went and researched their active shooter plan. Basically, it all boils down, Dion, to run, then fight, then hide run, then hide, then fight, excuse me. That's kind of the, the language or the lingo that we hear is run, um, you know, hide. And if somebody is, if a perpetrator is right there in front of you, you know, fight them. That doesn't seem like the best policy when we're talking about, you know, levels of, of, of guns that are just so high and so um, complex and powerful versus human beings who, who are unarmed. I think that that one of the, the solutions is to continue this dialogue and letting students lead, right? So often we hear from these higher administration officials who I'm sure worked hard for their degrees, but they have all of these degrees and sometimes lose touch with the reality of what's going on on the ground. I mean, they're so removed from being students that times have changed. Social media plays an impact in these incidents. We saw in Parkland, Florida, that was one of the first times that America could see live 
the pictures and images and videos coming out of a school shooting. And, and we saw what happened at UNC a few weeks ago when the professor was unfortunately shot and killed, all of the information coming out via social media. So students know what's going on, um, or at least they're talking to one another and, and using our, our smartphones and technology to our advantage. So better dialogue between administration on these campuses and current students is, is a broad solution that will move us in the right direction. Another, again, is better active shooter training. And here's a third solution. Some of these colleges and universities that have been the victims of gun violence and uh, shooting attacks, they need to be better advocates for gun safety, um, for protecting mm -hmm. our campuses. I mean, let's be real. I'm not somebody who's any type of security expert or who believes that everything needs to be secure and locked down, but we see these incidences continuing to, to, to occur. Excuse me. We saw a few weeks ago in in Florida, right, where a gunman went to an HBCU campus. Thankfully, they had good security and kicked him off. But then he went and killed black people who he didn't like. I believe it was right. Jacksonville. And so we've right. got to get serious about our power and agency and schools like UNC or Emory or others. They have power. So what would it look like if not just students went down to the legislature as they did at UNC and advocated in Raleigh for gun safety? What would it look like if they had some administrators with them, if they took some meetings with some of our highest level politicians and said, this is ridiculous. We need to be able to secure our campuses if we're not going to do anything about gun violence. But if you're open to some gun safety measures, let's talk about them, because I don't want to take my time when I should be teaching, when I should be protecting and encouraging my students to give a press conference about why a gunman found his way or their way onto our campus and was able to take the lives of my students. So those are just, I guess, three solutions that um, I say would be effective in at least reducing. And this is where we get lost. Again, this is another conversation that we should continue to have, but this is where we get lost in, in these conversations about politics. There's the old cliche, you know, don't miss the forest for the trees. Gun violence is a reality. It happens way too often, and I believe that it it is a positive thing if we can just reduce the percentage, the rate that gun violence occurs in our country each year. Sometimes when you talk about violence and wanting to reduce it, people have this, um, you know, zero threshold where they think, well, if your solution is not going to completely cut it out by next year, then it's not a good one. No, we need to work in piecemeal uh, mindset to make sure that we're reducing the rates that gun violence occurs because we've we've seen just the the staunch lock in by groups like the NRA or other groups who have money and power and they don't want this issue to be fully addressed and so any reduction in the loss of life on this issue of of gun violence in particular I think is a positive one. So you make some great points. So one of the things that I think could be done. One of the strategies that I think could be put in place is um, more of an upstream approach, right, by schools. And I, I want to talk K-12 for a minute. Um, I know we're, we were talking about colleges and universities, but I want to go to um, K-12 for a minute. Okay. Um, I, I think that, well, K-12 and college, like, right, right. I think they both could take an upstream approach um, and be like a lot of the, the things that you were saying, be more uh, proactive as opposed to trying to be reactive, right? Right. Um, and I, I, I want to ask you, as someone, when you were in K-12, 
you speak openly about having a, a father who was, you know, there in your life and a father who was involved. Uh, what role do you think that fathers engaged in schools? And when I say engaged, I don't mean just helping with homework and going to PTA meetings. I mean, actually being a part of the body of the school. What do you think it would mean if more schools had fathers there doing things like volunteering, doing things like helping out around the school? Like, what would that look like to have an approach, uh, an anti-violence approach in schools that includes fatherhood engagement? Well, I think it would be uh, amazing. And I think it's happening already. And so this is a moment in which I would like to shout out my dad, who I said went to Carroll Middle School in Raleigh and then Sanderson High School. And now he's giving back to his K-12 community, specifically to Sanderson High School. He's working with the Sanderson High School Foundation, which is a group of diverse parents who are investing back in the school and investing in students and showing up and volunteering and beautifying the campus. That's what it's going to take. And so my dad, you know, who I love dearly, is a Black father, is a Black man who has to endure and worry with the fears that so many Black people do in this country, but he is still willing to give back. Um, you know, sometimes we butt heads with one another, but I think that his challenges to me as a rising, growing Black man um, early in my life are really what propelled me to this moment. Those moments really helped me understand the, the type of man I wanted to be and the type of man that I'm becoming. And so I think Black fatherhood, there's really nothing like it. And it's so necessary, especially to be integrated with the K-12 schooling system. So when I think about Black fatherhood, like you said, more than just attending PTA meetings or joining a board, but are you actually there? Are you visible? Are you having dialogue with the leaders of these schools? Are you saying, I'm here, I'm willing to help in whatever capacity, and sometimes I'm going to push the envelope a little bit. Um, you know, I don't only show up at, at sporting events, I might do that too, but I'm also there to volunteer as a tutor in my child's classroom, or I'm there to be on the school parent safety committee because I want my child and all children of this school to be safe. I think it's not only necessary, but that's how we build this community that I'm talking about, what Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. called the beloved community, where all of us are contributing toward young people. All of us are contributing toward defending one another. All of us are contributing toward loving one another, challenging one another. And so I think, yes, a lot of times when you think about Black fathers, as I'm sure you know and talk about on your show, there's a negative connotation. You talk to a lot of folks who, um, you know, have, have racist thoughts and they say, well, you know, black fathers don't really show up or they're not that great or, you know, they might be the only parent in the household. So the odds are just stacked, stacked against them. So they're not really anybody that we should stake our hope in. I think that's just such a dangerous way to think. And I think there are so many positive stories that need to be uplifted. Stories like my father, um, stories like his father, my grandfather and some of my family history going way back to the civil rights movement and before I have family roots on my black side here in Georgia, uh, specifically in Albany, Georgia, Southwest Georgia, almost Alabama. So imagine growing up there during times of segregation. And Dr. King actually went through Albany and was locked up in that jail at the time that some of my black family members were trying to figure out who they were becoming. Uh, they were my age. And so to think about the struggles that our ancestors went through and no, they didn't always get it right, but none of us do. And so to extract the positive stories, but also the stories of struggle to learn from those stories and now implement them, 
I think there is a real, again, moment of opportunity right now for Black parents and Black fathers in particular to step up and to take an active and leading role in their children's education, be it public school or private school. Just be there and, and understand that when your child sees you in these places of education and in these places of learning, they're not only looking up to you and noting that down, but they're encouraged to do well. Um, especially if you are rooting for them and you are wanting to make their space a safer one. Uh, so I think Black fathers have a real uh, opportunity. I mean, I think they should look at it that way as well. I'm not a father yet, but I think it's important to understand that young people really do um, look up to and, and notice what our parents are doing. And so to see them always around, to see them having fun, but also being able to be serious with us, uh, to see them at our places of, of learning, which is where we spend most of our time, K-12, right? It's not at the house, it's at school. Uh, that is very powerful and I think positive. Yeah, yeah. Uh, let's talk about the three E's. You, you touched on it a little bit. Um, your three E's, education, empowerment, equity. Uh, I, wanna, I wanna ask you, how do you envision the role of the three E's in uh, shaping a, a more inclusive and equitable educational landscape? I mean, I think the three E's are, are critical. You've got education, you've got empowerment, and you've got equity. Um, it's actually funny. I started law school, and the three E's is something I coined a few years ago after George Floyd's death and the subsequent po protests. And I got down here, and you know, probably like you found it on my LinkedIn, um, a judge down here on the Georgia Supreme Court actually saw the three E's and sent me a message and said, I love this. Um, they happen to be mm -hmm. Black. And I think it's so important, again, starting with education, I've already mentioned how important that is as a pillar and a launch, launching point, excuse me, for us all. Empowerment, I mean, it's just necessary if we want to get to a place of progress. We've got to uplift one another. We've got to, I don't want to use the word in the definition, but we need to encourage one another um, and really push and challenge each other. I think when we think about empowerment, we think about praise, and that's a big part of it. How can we pull out and extract and elevate these positive stories in America's Black community, in America's marginalized communities. But also, it's it's challenge. Okay, I want to push you to be better. I want to make sure that you recognize your agency. I want to make sure that you recognize your privilege in certain spaces. I think a lot of people think of racial privilege, but there's also privilege of wealth. There's privilege of access. There's privilege of education. There's privilege of physical ability. And so to be able to say, okay, I know what my strengths are, and I want to use those to, of course, create a better life for myself, but also pull up and uplift those around me. That's what empowerment means to me. And then equity, that third E, I think is where it all comes to a head, right? The end goal here is not only for all of us to be equal and the same, but for us to be equitable as a people and as a country, which means having the same access to opportunities to grow and succeed. I've already mentioned that I think diversity, uh, the diversity that each of us have in our communities and families is a strength. I think it's a positive, but I think that we all uh, should recognize that differences are not a negative thing, but when we push to make sure that all have access to safety, security, and also wealth, I think that's really where the difference is going to be made. And so education and, and empowerment, it's almost like a step stool. You've got to start here, make sure this is strong. Then you can add empowerment on top, praise and challenge, praise and push, as I like to say. And then adding that third, that top level stair of equity, 
you've made it to the top then. And so I'm always pushing toward equity and using the vessels of education, knowledge, empowerment, pushing and praise to do it. Mm, mm. That's good. That's good. Um, you're a sharp brother, man. Like, <laughs> you're, you're a sharp brother, man. Thank you. Uh, and you, you know, as, as a young man, I, I have a daughter who is in college. Uh, she is attending North Carolina A&T. Um, and I know it's a lot um, to, 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 to be in college and uh, to, to try to balance everything. But right now you're balancing law school. You're balancing your work in advocacy. Uh, I assume you have some sort of social life. It seems like <laughs> if you would have time, I don't know Just how you, bit. yeah, I mean, I mean y'all, you know, you would find time sure to be social. Atlanta is the city uh, that they say is too busy to hate. And it's definitely busy. Uh, I'm not going to say there's no hate here, but um, I think that Atlanta has so much to offer. I'm enjoying, like I said, week six, just getting uh, into the city and exploring it and, and understanding its history and diversity. And so I think um, I will plug that having a social life is necessary. Uh, taking care of your mental health is key and critical. I'm a big mental health and therapy advocate, especially for black men and black women. And so I'm looking for a black therapist down here in Atlanta, hoping to find one soon. I've had a great mm -hmm. one back home in North Carolina throughout my time at UNC Chapel Hill. And it's great to be able to talk through your emotions and what's going on in your life with someone um, or multiple people. Yes, it's great to have mentors that you trust, but also to have an unbiased person who is trained in allowing you to talk through strategies to better yourself and make sure that you have more margin in your mind uh, to engage in social life and not be worried or anxious all the time is very necessary. Um, I would also encourage people listening or, or watching to journal. Uh, if you're able to write down your thoughts, write down your hopes, write down your dreams, write down your struggles, um, and then talk through those with someone. Sometimes when you write it out, um, and fill a page with your words, you recognize two things. One, uh, either that it's a lot and you don't know what to do, or two, that you know yourself better than you think, and you're able to really summarize what's going on in your life. And I think that's a powerful thing, to know your story, to be able to tell it, and to be able to share it. And so having a social life, super important. You've got sports down here. I mean, they're not all that great. You got the Hawks and the Falcons, right? But Atlanta United, the soccer team here is amazing. You've got great colleges and universities. You've got great food. I was able to visit Black chef Marcus Samuelson, who a lot of the listeners or viewers might know. He's an Ethiopian-American chef, has restaurants all over this country, and he has a great one down here. It's just called Marcus's. Um, it was awesome. Uh what else have I gotten into down here? I visited Cam Newton's Cigar Bar. Um, they have a mm. great, great atmosphere there. And it's cool to see Cam Newton pouring into the city of Atlanta. Um, so I would say that it's not only necessary to have a social life, but find a social life that really fits you and suits you. I mean, don't go out and, and just engage in um, you know, events or gatherings just because somebody tells you to. But make sure that you have people around you. Um, that support you, that challenge you, that you can have fun with, and it's actually fun um, and stress reducing. Mm. Well, you, you know, you're so good. You answered my question before I could even completely <laughs> ask it. Uh, my, the, the, what I was leading into was how do you manage to stay grounded and like, how do you manage to uh, take on all of these demanding roles? But I think you just, you answered it perfectly. Well, uh, so I as, I mean, I guess I'll take the moment just briefly to say that my faith is important to me as well. That's the way that mm. I stay grounded, not only having a social life, not only I'm um, having people that I can talk to and just uh, 
you know, some people say vent, but I think recharge is a better word. How can I kind of spit out information, spit out how I'm feeling um, when people are, are there and willing to receive it, but also restore the energy that I need to go out and produce, uh, to go out and and do well and feel fulfilled. And so I think my faith plays a big role in recharging me and energizing me. Um, I think that just the the Lord and the ways in which um, God guides me and encourages me when times get tough is something that cannot be understated. So I'll definitely add that in there uh, with the time we have left. Hmm. Um, you're a sharp brother, man. I just I know I keep saying that, but you're a sharp brother, man. <laughs> uh, so I, I want you to do me a favor, because, you know, as parents. A lot of us as parents, we have children who are in college. Right. And sometimes the the phase is funny i was i was having a conversation with my therapist today um and we, we were talking about the phases of of life that we go through and mm. you know i was kind of working through some things and it it through the conversation it was exposed to me that you know at us at, at the college age you know 18 to 23 ish um, like you said before, the brain is still developing. You're still working through some thoughts and you're still working through some ideas. And sometimes those thoughts are, are, are self-centered and you don't see the world around you. Mm. Uh, I want you to talk to parents who might be experiencing the struggles that come along with having a child in college, because I would be willing to bet that your perspective in life now it's totally different than it was at 18 or 19. Right. And sometimes right. as parents, we don't get to um, be a part of that growth because sometimes the, the children are they're They're experiencing life, right? They're, they're growing into their own. They're learning what it is to become an adult. And sometimes as parents, we aren't always included in every single part of that. So we don't always get it. So I want you to kind of talk to, to talk to the parents from your perspective as uh, someone who, again, was just recently in the uh, role of an undergraduate college student. Sure. So I, I definitely think it's important to have this conversation about how parents can be supportive um, of their young people, of their college age students in particular, and what students are going through and what we're thinking and experiencing, as you put it that 18 to 22 period, and that's kind of the core group that we work with for Young Americans Protest, recent high school graduates, or that age. I know not everyone goes the same route when it comes to education. I mean, it's a tough time. I will say, like you mentioned, uh, I credit my parents with getting me to this point um, almost wholly and completely. My faith has also propelled me here. But my relationship and the dynamics with my parents have definitely changed and not in bad ways, but in different ways from the time I was in high school to where I am now. Um, I still check in with them, you know, every day, every week. And, and I have two younger siblings. And so one of them is in college to be able to say, wow, I made it through because of that familial support, because of community support. Uh, is so is so valuable and reassuring to me. It makes me feel as if I okay, I can go launch into the world now and be successful. So specifically to parents of college aged young people, I would say, um, you know, support them. Let them know that you're there. I know a lot of times, and and I appreciate my parents for this. 
parents have a perspective that they want their children to understand uh, and to learn. And they know that they went through so much, if not all of what we go through and are going through at this, this young age. So much change happens in your 20s as well. And so when you switch over from 19 to 20, as you're kind of halfway through your process of um, attending college or whether you're just entering the workforce, you're learning what it's like to be an adult. I put on Facebook the other day, adulting is, uh, you know, it's hard. It's not all it's stacked up to be, but there are definitely little moments in there where um, I'm excited for the future. And that's because of a strong foundation that my parents laid. And so having them be able to be there for me at all times, um, but also to have them set boundaries and say, hey, you've got to go through this some on your own. The world has changed since 30 years ago when I was in college. And I want to make sure that you um, don't experience the negative things necessarily that I did, but the moments and points in life that pushed me to grow. I want you to be able to have that same growth. Um, I know that you know, my child, if I'm a parent, is not the same person I am. They might have different passions, different goals, different interests. And sometimes that's tough for parents, right? You're releasing control. Um, and also from the time that your children are, are, are babies, you have this vision for their lives. But it's their lives, right? Inherent in that statement is it's someone else's life. They're connected to you. They came from you, but they have goals. They have um, you know, challenges that they have to get through and they have to get through it. I mean, th that's why that role of a parent as a supporter, even as a friend, I know people like to say, especially in the black community, like, I'm not your friend, I'm your mama, right? I'm not your friend, I'm your dad. Yes, mm -hmm. that's great. That discipline and structure, those boundaries are needed, but there's still a role for being a cordial supporter, especially in those college days when there's so much drama about friendships, what are my relationships going to look like, romantic or otherwise? Am I going to get a job coming out of here, right? I need a companion. I need somebody to who, who has known me my whole life to be able to say, hey, I'm here for you. What do you need? I'm here to offer advice. But yeah, sometimes I, I don't understand, right? To be able to be humble is something I would encourage parents to do. I'm not saying get lax on the responsibilities that you believe your children should um, be adhering to, but to say, hey, I don't know the answer to that. Let me find out for you. Or, hey, I'm going to show up um, because I know this event is important to you, but it's not something I did in college. So walk me through it. Allowing young people and college age students to teach you as a parent about their life, I think, is, is something that um, is key. And, and again, not sitting back, but being an active listener, leaning forward but not always talking. So there are these little moments in my college experience where I can point back and say, wow, I'm so grateful for the support of my parents, right? They might've been whispering something to me that I just now I'm understanding. They weren't silent, but they weren't yelling in my face. And so to be able to say, okay, I'm a parent. I love and want to support my child. I don't know everything that they're going through, but I do know that I had similar experiences if there are two parents in the house talking through that with your partner, um, if you have friends who are also parents finding support and, and structure there, uh, a lot of times, and I've heard my parents say this when, when I and my sister and my brother will soon go off to college, when we went off to college or will go off to college, parents are also kind of off to college in their own way, right? When people leave the house or, or especially when parents become empty nesters, it's almost like their life is, is restarting. And so to make sure that that parents have um, a therapist, they have friends who they're able to go out and have some fun with 
um, instead of always worrying, which I know is natural, about their students, about their children. I think those are a few pieces of advice if I had to, to talk directly to parents of college-aged students, I would say. So the, the one thing that you did not hit on, and I'll ask this for myself, and maybe you can help. When do they stop asking for money? I can't answer that because I'm still asking, but... <laughs> Okay. Okay. So, okay. So let me, so you're 20, what you 22, 22. Okay. So 22, just roughly how long do you think I got before she stops asking for money? Just mm. if you had Let's to gauge. See. Well, I don't know if she's interested in going to grad school or not, but it's not going to stop then. So maybe right. after right. that, <laughs> after grad. Okay. Okay. All right. But then can, if she has that. a partner or wants to have children, she might still ask you for money or some type of financial support. So I don't know. I'll just keep pushing it out because I don't want. Greer, you're losing. You're losing me. I, you, I can't. I can't even hear you anymore. You're losing me. I can't. Okay. You're, you're, you're you're breaking up. You're, it might your be, phone's breaking up. It might be your Wi-Fi. I know you're a little bit older. <laughs> you have some issues over there. <laughs> I got I got AOL dial up over here. You're right. I got I got dial up over here. Look, if you uh, send last... me some money though, I can fix your issues. Absolutely not. No, sir. No, sir. <laughs> I got one in college already. I can't, I can't afford no more. No, sir. <laughs> so, so listen, man, with everything that's going on, I know you are, you are enjoying your time at um, Emory. Uh, what's next as we close out? What, what's next for you? What is the, the future hold for you um, as you look towards, um, you know, life after um, law school? Well, I definitely want to take Sidekicks Academy global and continue to support them. I want to continue to, to work and build on the progress of Young Americans protests. But personally, I mean, I want to make it through these three years of law school. I know I will because of my supportive community and because of my faith. I want to go on to continue to listen to people, learn from them and, and learn their stories and also defend them. Um, I want to give back to the community, whichever community I find myself a part of. And I want to make sure that I am working and doing my part to change written codes and the law so that we can all thrive. I think a lot of times when we have conversations about race, some people get offended. They say, well, we're not really living in a racial society anymore. It's not really a factor or, you know, racism was of the past or even specifically talking about Black people or the Latinx community or Asian Americans somehow disenfranchises the majority in this country, um, while they may not be the majority for long. But I would argue that uplifting the most marginalized, specifically when it comes to race, benefits us all. When we can protect and encourage and uplift Black Americans or Hispanic or Latino Americans or Asian Americans, white Americans also benefit. When we can, can when we can keep communities safer and when we can keep students educated and in school, that benefits all school children, that benefits all communities that want safety. And so to continue to have these conversations, and I think, I think my role has always been one of a challenger to continue to challenge society and our leaders to think about ways to unite through accountability instead of divide, that's what I hope to do. And so I'm not really worried about what exactly that's going to look like. Professionally, I know I'm going to use this law degree and I, I know my parents are gonna watch this at some point. So they wanna hear me say, I'm gonna use this law degree um, to the <laughs> max in whatever I do. But I know that God's got me. I know that I'm going to, to be successful because 
I care about people. Um, I think it's also important just when you're talking about the professional space or even in college, when you're making friends and thinking through your career to not think about transactions. Um, is this relationship going to benefit me and help me make more money? Or is this person going to get me to this person's office where I can make more money? It's not always about money. I know that's tough for people to hear, especially after what we were just talking about. I'm never going to deny money being offered to me, but relationships are so much more valuable. They just are. I mean, it's been proven. And so I want to be the best um, man that I can be, right? I want to be the best community leader and supporter that I can be. And I want to have fun along the way, right? I want to show people that politics is not always serious. I'll take this moment to say, as we wrap up, the root word of politics, P-O-L, comes from the Greek. It just means people of a citizenry. How do we govern one another? How do we build community with one another? So when people say, oh, I'm not political, or you talk too much about politics, Greer, I'm just talking about people. I'm talking about life. Do you not care about your family members? Do you not have people who, whether positively or negatively, pour into your life? Do you not have a boss? Do you not have a spouse? Do you not have a child? Politics matters. Who we elect matters. If you care about education or crime or having your garbage picked up, I know that you know I'm, I'm here in Atlanta, but I'm supporting the sanitation workers in Durham who are asking for more money right now. If you care about um, the police and how they treat your community, then you're caring about politics and you should have an active role in that change. That's the only way that these issues are going to be improved. And so long story short, I'm here, as you can see on the screen, to, to not only be a student right now, but to educate others and not just be an activist, but be an actionist. I don't want somebody mm -hmm. to ever say, oh, Greer didn't really act on his beliefs or he talked a good game, but he never... He never played the game. I want to be a player in the game of love, in the game of justice, and in the game of community. Sharp brother, man. That's all I can say. Um, um, tell them how they can get at you, how they can reach out to you, if they want to contact you, uh, connect with you, and all the things. Definitely, definitely. Um, Y'all can contact me or reach out to me on social media. I'm on all social medias, at Greer Webb. I'm on Facebook. Uh, you can follow me there. I'm on LinkedIn. You can connect with me there. And I'm on Instagram and Twitter at Greer Web. So reach out to me. Um, I'll give you the, the best advice that I can. Or if you just need a listening ear, I'm here. Um, I'm over here trying to study torts and make sure that I know how to represent clients here in a few years to the best of my ability. But I will carve out time, um, especially for young people and for parents to guide you as best I can down the road of support and love and justice. So reach out to me. I'm just on all social medias at my name. That's dope, man. I don't know if we're going to see you on the Supreme court one day, or if we're going to see you in the white house one day, but I definitely see some really great things uh, in your future. Great brother. So thank you so much for the work that you do. Thank you for, for taking the time to uh, have this conversation with me. It is appreciated. I'm looking forward to just seeing, uh, just so many great things for, from you uh, and for you in the future, man. I'm, 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 I'm highly impressed by this conversation that we have had um, and just really looking forward to the great work that you're going to do, uh, not just for the folks here in North Carolina, but for uh, the country and for our people, like for real. So thank you. Uh, this, this is just another dope episode of Dads in the Class, y'all. The podcast, it is uh, by the time you hear this, it will be up on all download download and uh, digital service platforms. I've decided to go ahead and take it off of just being on LinkedIn. So 
Uh, by the time this drops, it'll be on YouTube. It'll be on Apple Podcasts. It'll be on Spotify. You can find it at all the places. So be sure to subscribe, be sure to so, uh, to share, and be sure to uh, just holler at Brother Greer Webb because he's doing some really great work. And we will see y'all in the next episode. Peace. Peace. Hey, are you looking for new and innovative ways to connect with your children? Do you want to learn how to connect with them through hip hop, social media, and popular culture? Then look no further than my company, The Glad Dad. I'm Dion, a keynote speaker, professional development trainer, and workshop presenter. And I'm also an expert in family engagement. And I want to show you and everyone around you how to use the latest trends to connect with young people on a much deeper level, a level that will truly break down barriers and create change. By working with The Glad Dad, you'll learn how to break through the noise and meet young people where they are to connect with them on their level. You'll discover new ways to communicate, engage, and create meaningful connections that'll last a lifetime. Whether you're a parent, teacher, or youth leader, I want to teach you the strategies that'll help you connect with your kids like never before. From keynote speeches to professional development training, I got you covered. So don't wait any longer. Visit my website, DionChavis.com today to learn more about how I can help you connect with your children through hip-hop, social media, and popular culture. Your kids will thank you for it. That's right, the Glad Dad, helping adults establish positive relationships with young people. Reach out to me today and let's discuss how I can serve you and your staff. Now let's get back to the podcast.